I'm Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, first of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you're doing and how's your family doing with all the things that you're facing right now. Yeah, terrific. So, uh, you know, personally, I'm doing pretty well. Um, everything is relative to an individual uh, with glioblastoma, knowing that that's, you know, a tough diagnosis that comes with cancer care as well as neurological deficits. Um, I think relative to that population, I'm doing well. So approaching three years of survivorship uh, after diagnosis. So that is a, it's a milestone for an aggressive brain cancer like GBM. So I'm, I'm doing well. That's awesome. And I, you know, we're friends um, on social media and I see your family and your three boys. Um, I mean, how, how are they doing? Yeah, the boys are, you know, we are three boys. They are seven, five and three years old. And uh, as you can imagine, the house is, is full of energy and enthusiasm, uh, and uh, we probably won't invest in any nice furniture for another several years. <laughs> That's um, awesome. But they are great. Uh, our, uh, we have, even this evening, uh, our middle guy goes for a kindergarten open house uh, in preparation oh, big for day. next year. So it's a big day. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is awesome. Well, you know... With with talking with someone who has faced a serious illness and is now living with a serious illness, you know, tell me about your journey prior to facing this. I mean, what was it like, and 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 how how did this diagnosis change your life? Yeah, these are you know big big questions. So uh, my wife Whitney and I, uh, we were really just kind of on track to have. I think the the typical American sort of suburban family life. Um, I was working as a as a project manager with a training and development consulting firm. Uh, my wife is a, an occupational therapist at our county hospital, so we were growing our family to full time income working adults. I was uh, completing the uh, requirements for my master's degree in in philosophy, and uh, you know the serious illness was sort of just came out of nowhere. Um, I had been experiencing these strange episodes of dizziness um, for the for even more than a year uh, that we were trying to troubleshoot. Um, so we knew that you know that something was strange with my health. Um, but uh, beyond some some kind of intermittent weakness and these dizziness episodes, uh, really a, a brain tumor was the furthest thing uh, from our minds. Oh wow, wow! And that's the only so. You- Little, no other symptoms whatsoever that you could, you could pinpoint. No, not really. I mean, I think um, it's it's tough when when you are, you know, you're you're working a full time job and you've got kids at home, and so those little stressors, you know, headaches and things like that. Um, we just didn't think much about uh, a concern. I think uh, over the course of a year, as those what we found out were seizures, but we didn't know at the time. Those were increasing in frequency and duration and intensity, uh, where finally, 
you know, I just had to tell my doctor, I said, listen, it was a general practitioner. Um, I said, listen, these are really getting worse and not any better. Uh, and so we decided to, to go for an MRI, a brain scan, and that's when the tumor was revealed. But uh, yeah, no, no further uh, symptoms other than those strange dizziness episodes and headaches. So here you are, um, you're, you're really young and growing your family full time and you discover something and tell me about that day. Sure. So, um, it was uh, Friday, a Friday morning and Friday the 13th even. Oh, wow. And um, I had had, um, you know, one of these really intense episodes on just the, the Wednesday of the same week. So I had reached out to my doctor's office and I said, you know, we need to get in quickly. Uh, it was Wednesday evening. Uh, maybe a, uh, I was, it was pretty urgent. Right. So we were able to get in Friday morning and, uh, you know, my doctor administered uh, now in the the language that I've picked up over the past couple of years, it was an, a pretty standard neurological exam, um, but it was kind of strength testing and reflexes and peripheral vision, those sorts of things. Um, and sometime during that examination, uh, my doctor decided something is up here. Um, so she said to me in a calm way, said, listen, we need to get you to an MRI and she even used the word stat. Oh, and I wow. thought, well, that's a, that's a Gray's Anatomy term. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I, I, called, uh, I called Whitney, who was at work, and I said, you know, uh, uh, my doctor is requesting that I get into an MRI. It, she scheduled it, or her office scheduled it, just a couple hours uh, later. And I said, so I'm going to go over there and get a scan. Uh, so I was pretty naive about the whole thing. Whitney, who has a lot of experience in healthcare, uh, given her profession, she said, well, I'm going to meet you there. And I even tried to say, uh, well, don't worry about it. I'm fine. She said, no, no, this is uh, serious. Um, so she met me there. And what was interesting, you know, it was my first time, I, you know, I didn't have any prior health complications. I certainly had not had something like an MRI. Um, so, I, you know, I was, was slid into the tube. Uh, and then about midway through, uh, one of the, the radiology techs kind of slid me back out and said, okay, we're going to place an IV and give you some, some a contrast dye. Now, I didn't know uh, that that's indicative of looking for areas of enhancement for a tumor or for a cancer diagnosis. I just thought, okay, well, this is what they right. do. This is when they give you the dye. Um, so we, we wrapped up the MRI. Uh, Whitney and I left. And within, you know, I'd say 15, maybe 20 minutes of completing that MRI, uh, we got a call back from my doctor's office. And, and my doctor said, uh, you and your wife need to get back in here. Uh, immediately. And so that was like, what the heck? Yes. Yeah. So we, you know, that of course is an indication to us something is, is seriously the matter. Um, so we went back and, you know, what was interesting is that when we returned uh, to my doctor's office, um, it was clear that uh, at least a good portion of the staff uh, knew to expect us. It was, I've joked that you know, in those old Westerns, when the bad guy walks into the saloon and everybody hushes, right. you know, it's quiet. Uh, it was like that. We walked into the office and it was just silence kind of fell over the, uh, the folks that were behind the desk. And we went to sign the clipboard uh, to sign in. Uh, and a, a nurse said, oh, you don't need to sign in. The doctor's expecting you. Um, so everything was kind of suggesting to us, this is going to be a big deal. Mm. Um, and so we were ushered back to a, a one of the office, uh, one of the rooms, examination rooms. And yeah, so uh, our, our doctor came in and said, listen, 
uh, you know, the news is not good. Uh, she had spent some time on the phone with the uh, radiologist who prepared the radiology report. Uh, and she, uh, together, uh, my spouse and I, we just read through that radiology report um, and, you know, had more questions than answers, but knew that it was serious. Mm. Now, did, did the physician that brought you back in, did she or he ever say, look, this could be a potential life-limiting diagnosis? Yeah, not, at, not at that time. I think um, what, what I really appreciate and respect, and I, and I think this, I'm not sure everyone would have the same reaction, but I appreciated the, our doctor, my physician, uh, admitting that this is not an area of specialty for her. Mm. You know, she's a family medicine practitioner. She said, I'm, I'm not a radiologist or a, a neuroanatomist or neurologist. Um, so she said really the best that, that she had to go on was what was provided in the brief conversation with the radiologist. Um, she did say, you know, it is a large mass. So it was uh, 71 millimeters. So to put that in kind of real terms, that's about the diameter of a baseball. Uh, so it was, a, it was a large mass. And she said, we've already scheduled you with a, a neurosurgeon for a consultation a Monday morning. So this was Friday afternoon. So we knew it was serious enough that, you know, we'd get through the weekend and Monday we'd be meeting with a neurosurgeon. What was the weekend like? Did it tick by in, I bet you were thinking, uh, you know, for me, um, I would have, I would have been like, look, what about later today? Um, you know, you, 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 you find out this serious information that you really don't know the full ramifications of it. What was that weekend like for you? Yeah, so it was a lot of touching base with family. I mean, my, my spouse and I, we are, um, each of us, we're so close with our families and our families are close. And I think that that, it's actually one of the things that makes us most compatible is this kind of loyalty and priority of family. So we did, mm -hmm. we reached out to that safety net uh, and made a lot of phone calls, uh, you know, to our folks and our siblings and kind of talk through what, what could this be? What could this amount to? We also have a very close friend of the family uh, who's a, a longtime uh, nurse uh, on a, a neurology floor. Oh, great. And so we did reach out to that friend and shared kind of the bare bones information that we had. Um, but she really helped to prepare us for what might the meeting with a neurosurgeon be like? What are some good questions that we'll want to ask? And that was so helpful uh, to help us kind of develop a, a plan over the weekend. So this you know, this friend sort of said, look, don't go in unprepared. Here's some questions that you probably want to be answered. So you sort of went in saying, okay, I, I the, you're going to tell me some information, but I also have some questions for the physician to get a better understanding of what possibly I'm facing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Wow. So you became your own advocate you know, even then. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting about that is, is certainly at, at that time, and, you know, I, I had such little contact with, uh, you know, healthcare and medical professionals leading, professionals leading up to that, uh, that at that time, in, in my mind, it was very much kind of the physician on high and the passive patient. So I saw, I, you know, that power dynamic, that physician-patient dynamic, I was very much kind of you know, I, I was trapped in that mindset. I mean, trapped is too strong of a word, but that was my approach. And what I've learned through kind of my advocacy work over the past couple of years, not to skip around too much, but that 
you know, physicians are, are for the most part, um, most physicians, you know, they don't want to feed into that power dynamic. I mean, I think um, there's a kind of a level playing field uh, that that's the best to develop a relationship where folks are equal. I think healthcare is heading in that direction. Uh, and so it's been an interesting learning curve for me because, yeah, when we went to that meeting, it was like, sure, I've got some questions, but you are the, the powerful, knowledgeable surgeon. You know, right. what, what do I say? Right. So what happened on Monday? Yep. So we, um, you know, we made the trip to, to meet with the neurosurgeon. And what's so there were so many interesting things to come out of that meeting. So the first most striking thing was that the neurosurgeon said, um, I'm shocked that the person that I'm speaking with right now in my office is the same person I was just looking at on the MRI scans. Um, so the, the size and location of the tumor did not match the high cognitive functioning that I had at that time. So that was, um, I think that was the... How do you even digest that? Like, uh, I mean, what do you say to that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's, you're a, kind of relieved, I guess, first of all. This, like, wow. I, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, 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 the way that that conversation developed is my surgeon presented some options. We could do a biopsy, um, even said we could, you know, do a watch and wait. Uh, those were not uh, his recommendations. Those were options he presented to us. But his overall opinion was uh, that thing in your head is so big, it doesn't matter what it is. We've got to get it out. Right. Oh. Um, so there was there was that urgency, I think, uh, throughout the, the that conversation. Wow. So when did you when did you actually know that this was going to be a cancer diagnosis? When when did that evolve into? Oh my goodness! It's not only a tumor, but it is a cancerous tumor. Yeah. To the I think to the credit of of our surgeon. Um, and I do use that R and we language, um, but to the to the credit of the surgeon, he said even from his interpretation of the scans, he said this does look like an aggressive tumor. So he didn't use the language cancer in that initial meeting, but he did say it looks very aggressive. So uh, Whitney and I left that meeting thinking, okay, well, this is this is not the best language <laughs> that he could right. have used uh, to, to help us to rest easy. Um, following uh, surgery, um, so we did get into surgery pretty quickly. Um, and following surgery, uh, when the surgeon came out to speak with Whitney, who was in the waiting room, uh, he said, you know, we, we've been able to remove a, a good portion of the tumor. And he said at that time, you know, I have to tell you, we don't have the pathology, but this does look like a malignant and aggressive brain tumor based on uh, what he saw during the procedure. Um, so we had some hints in the beginning that we are dealing with, you know, a very serious uh, mass tumor. Um, but it, it wasn't until, um, gosh, it was, so I'm, I'm putting together the pieces here. It was May 26th the, uh, of, of 2016, but it was May 26th that I had the surgery we had to wait until June 10th to get the official pathology report. Um, so that was a, a long, you know, nearly two weeks before we actually got the diagnosis. Now, so what are you thinking during those? I mean, I, I could not even imagine 
what you're going through in your own mind. Because we as humans, let's all admit that we go to the worst case scenario. Um, and I mean, what, what were you thinking and what, how were you feeling during that two week stay of, Ooh, I think it is, but I don't know. Maybe there's a miracle. Um, what were you, what was going through your mind? Yeah. It's a strange, um, <laughs> it's a, I'm going to say, here's the good thing. And it's going to be a strange good thing because the good thing in fact was that, uh, because of the, so where the tumor was in my brain, it was, uh, pressing and invading the, the kind of the sensory motor cortex, which is just what controls, uh, sensory and, and movement and stuff on the opposite side of the body. So, uh, that in addition to some swelling and fluid collection as a result of brain surgery, um, I was, uh, not only in a wheelchair following surgery, uh, but I had near paralysis through my left arm and hand. So the re- that's not a good thing, but the reason I say it's a good thing is because uh, when I was discharged from the, the hospital, um, I went immediately to an inpatient acute rehab facility where I did intensive occupational and physical therapy every single day uh, for about three weeks. Now, it was during that time that we got the official diagnosis, but you know, the ability, I didn't want to be in a wheelchair. I certainly didn't enter this in a wheelchair. Um, so I was really highly motivated to do the therapy, to graduate out of the wheelchair to a walker and then ultimately to a cane. So those, the, uh, we were able to set kind of benchmarks, uh, goals for, for physical therapy. And, uh, really we were focused on, let's get me out of the wheelchair. And I think those short-term goals helped us um, to kind of process the diagnosis as something that, you know, we'll get to that after we recover as much function as we can now. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So when, when you did get the official diagnosis, what was the plan moving forward? Yeah. Our, um, so the neuro-oncologist who delivered uh, the diagnosis is the same neuro-oncologist that I continue to see now. Mm. So we have a, a really good relationship um, and I think that relationship was uh, was was built out of trust in the very beginning. Um, so when the diagnosis was given, um, my doctor said, "Here's what I'm recommending uh, for your care," um, but did encourage us. Said, "Listen, you you have the medical records. You can share those, and you can go get second opinions." And I think that the willingness. Uh, that our oncologist said during that first meeting to go out and get more opinions, um, that, that I think reassured us that, okay, he's been given a, a proposal, but is okay with us kind of gut checking that. Sure. So we did, we shared records uh, with Duke and Memorial Sloan Kettering, and they came back with a, a similar recommendation. Uh, I was not eligible for any open trials at that time at either of those uh, institutions, and they were recommending what is the standard of care uh, for high-grade uh, malignant brain tumors, which includes a daily radiation and chemotherapy uh, for six weeks, uh, and then you move to a kind of a monthly, what they call a maintenance chemotherapy cycle. Um, so that was the that was the plan. Let's do this. And all the while, I continued with outpatient physical and occupational therapy to keep working on. Uh, recovery. So you went from a guy having some dizzy spells to brain surgery to physical therapy to now I have 
it was a brain tumor and now daily radiation and chemotherapy in a matter of what, like four weeks? Yeah. Yeah. That's about right. How, I mean, you, you say your family, you're close, your wife's family, they're close together. I'm sure you guys are unbelievably close. I mean, what was it like? Um, did your family just immediately come and surround you guys? Yeah. Well, so, um, I think an important bit of uh, context, you know, uh, so my dad is, uh, he's, he's a senior pastor of a church. Uh, My dad's been a minister his whole life. So when I was born, my dad was in uh, seminary, actually wrapping up college and then in seminary. Um, so all that I've known is my dad being this faith leader. Now, what's interesting about that is, is <laughs> I mean, there's this other, uh, my dad's been really cool because he he's wanted me to go on a journey of, uh, it was never like, I think a lot of people that are pastor's kids or, or grew up in faith environments, it was kind of pressed on them that this is what you're going to do. And my dad is so cool that he's always said, listen, you got to find your own path. So he was always encouraging me to question uh, beliefs and to kind of find my own way. But at any rate, I think the reason this context is important is because uh, what I saw my dad doing every single day is he would grab a Bible and head out and a lot of his job visiting folks that are sick or dying in the hospital or officiating over funerals. I mean, of course, weddings and things too, but um, it was just a reality of our life that, you know, people get sick and die. Mm. Uh, so when it happened to me, uh, you know, it sucks. <laughs> I mean, and and we've been through, right. uh, it, it was never, quote unquote, easy to accept this. But it also, I never had the like, why me or how could this happen? Because I think I just grew up realizing, you know, this stuff happens to people. Happens to good people every day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So you, I I love that your father is a pastor that, you know, it just brings back my youth group days and, and how I even grew up. Um, But so you did grow up with sort of a a faith in that you could possibly handle just about anything or, or you, or maybe what path did you decide or what path did you take? Yeah, there was a, um, you know, this, this philosophy background comes in. I mean, I did some undergraduate, it's so interesting that, that the things that, you know, set us on a, a course, uh, during my undergraduate days, uh, I studied religious studies and medical humanities. Oh, wow. And then went to grad school for philosophy. And that was, that's way before we knew that I was going to have a serious illness. Wow. So, I, you know, I think from a, from a formal or education standpoint, uh, I was already equipped with some skills uh, to, to handle some of this. I mean, I think uh, facing one's own mortality and hearing a life-limiting diagnosis, there's no real preparation for that. Um, so I don't want to sound so naive or, you know, arrogant to say, well, I was ready for this. Right. I mean, nobody can really be prepared. Um, but I, I, I did know, okay, there are some resources that I can turn to. So I think um, I wanted to kind of recover what makes me, me, what is the, you know, what are those important things? And I think, you know, reading philosophy texts, that's something that makes me feel like this is who I am. Mm. So, um, I asked, uh, Whitney to, to bring me some of those books, some of my favorite books and a journal, uh, to the, the hospital room. 
uh, even during recovery and then during inpatient rehab. So I would, uh, you know, I'd wheel myself around uh, the corridors there and I'd read philosophy uh, and like, okay, I don't know what this is ever going to turn into, but this is what I enjoy doing. This feels like me. So I'm going to do as much me as I can. Oh, wow. Wow. That, and, and, and how did that, how did that help you? Is it, was it just relating back to, um, who you were prior to this diagnosis and, and it, it inspired you to continue to be you, even though you were facing a serious illness? Yeah, there's, you know, I mean, I think a reality, and this is, um, people are good and people are decent and, and people are quick to extend a sympathy and empathy if they've had similar experiences. Um, and so when you get a serious illness diagnosis, uh, your social interactions, there's a philosopher named Javi Corral who has a, a, a great, great book called Illness um, on this very topic. And she has this great line where she says, you know, uh, all social interactions become cast in the shadow of illness. And that is, that's true, that you get the sort of head tilt, you know, empathetic, uh, downturned smile um, from people as soon as they find out about you're facing something life limiting or, or you're facing cancer. Um, and there is something about kind of still being me and, and doing some semblance of academic work that I think was like, well, listen, I'm not only Adam, the cancer patient, um, but I'm still this guy that's into academics and into philosophy and wants to write and wants to share. Um, so I think it helped me sort of counteract that social dimension of illness. So how is your health now? Um, it's, it's so interesting how adaptable we are as people. Um, because the, the reality is, um, I, I have regular uh, focal seizures or partial seizures. Uh, focal is the, the technical term, but that includes a dizziness and weakness and a little bit of loss of coordination during the episodes. Uh, they are, they last for about five minutes. Um, I've, I'm on, uh, anti-epileptic uh, meds and we've played with dosages and stuff. And, um, so I have daily seizures and, uh, I have headaches pretty regularly and I do, uh, I, I'm able to, to walk and get around pretty well, but I do need a cane to kind of maintain balance. So uh, those, you know, those things certainly are, are, <laughs> those are not great, right? I mean, compared to the normal population or the normal ranges or normal behavior, um, I do have some symptoms. Um, but also, uh, I recognize, and I think in, in virtue of my close ties to the brain tumor community, where I love to volunteer and work, um, I, I recognize that people that are at a similar place on their journey with glioblastoma uh, oftentimes have um, much worse cognitive impairment language issues, are in wheelchairs, I mean, have things that, that uh, I don't have. Um, so I'm tempering where I'm at. You know what I mean? Wow, Adam, you you're actually seeing the glass half full amidst something like this, this which is amazing, but you also have seen with your work with with uh other organizations, you've seen other people that probably have the same similar thing you've had and have a lot kind of increased um deficits at this time. Does, has that inspired you to what you're doing in this community because I know um, you've become an advocate for palliative care, and you serve on multiple national advisory councils that focus on patient patient engagement. I mean, 
how important is it for you to have a voice when it comes to serv- services serving those facing a serious illness, especially, uh, you know, you're a brain tumor. I mean, because you're making a huge difference. You know, you are recovering, you still have symptoms, but you are a part of this community. You advocate for palliative care and and you serve on multiple national advisory councils focused on patient engagement. I mean, it's really important for your voice to be heard when it comes to how we improve services uh, for those facing a, a serious illness similar to yours. So tell me a little bit about your work. I mean, why is it important for your voice to be heard? Yeah, I think we do. Um, so one, I mean, I think one, one motivation, uh, goes back to that initial conversation we had on the weekend before we met the neurosurgeon, an informed nurse who was able to speak competently to kind of the path ahead. So, um, recognizing the power of that, um, I'm motivated to connect with folks who are newly diagnosed, who are setting out on the path ahead as someone who's been there and can inform their conversation. So there's a personal motivation to be a resource to others, uh, paying it forward in the same way folks have been a resource to me. Um, I think uh, reflecting on, you know, why I want to lift up my voice, um, you know, the reality is the world can be uh, a little bit judgmental uh, and, and the world can very quickly become uncomfortable uh, and fearful uh, when they see, you know, uh, something like disability or cognitive impairment, uh, language issues, when they see that reflected uh, at, at folks, they tend to get uncertain, fearful, uh, and may want to turn away from that. I think I recognize that I am articulate, and I am able to sort of vocalize some of the needs and priorities on behalf of the brain tumor community. So while I have an articulate voice, I think it makes me a strong advocate uh, for for the work that needs to be done. Um, so I, you know, it's so I, I don't I don't want to be haughty <laughs> about that, um, but I do want to recognize that I've got a, a unique skill set right now, and I need to capitalize on that. Well, it's I call that a gift, you know, and and you are bringing awareness to things that you're, you, you do. You have a very articulate voice. Um, you also co-moderate uh, a, a monthly social media chat. Uh, it's almost like a virtual support group, I think. Um, how does someone get involved with this group? And, and, and what d- happens when you do get involved with this group? Yeah, so we, we are hosted through um, the Answer Cancer Foundation. Um, so a, a quick Google search will take you to that uh, the kind of the home on the web for answer cancer. Um, that group does host uh, virtual support groups uh, for many uh, cancer types, uh, as well as uh, for care partners. So uh, if you have a spouse or a loved one, um, you can enjoy, uh, you can uh, uh, join one of their advanced cancer support groups, for example. Example, But um, yeah, so you can, you can Google them and search them. So we use the GoToMeeting platform uh, to host a video and audio chats and, uh, you know, we like to have small group participation monthly, um, you know, usually around a dozen people or so. And it is just an open and informal space uh, to kind of connect with other people who sort of get it. Um, you know, we do have different brain tumor types. Uh, the, the brain tumor chat that we host is kind of restricted to those folks with brain tumor experience. Um, so caring for someone or, or uh, impacted yourself. 
And, you know, we just jump on go to meeting for an hour every month. And, you know, if there are any big milestones, uh, one of our uh, participants is coming up on the five year anniversary. It's a strange way to put it anniversary, but the five year mark uh, of her diagnosis with a grade three brain tumor. So, you know, she's able to share that milestone with the group. And that's something for us to, to think about and to celebrate. Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, so it's, yeah. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an informal kind of come as you are uh, chat. So you also do a blog, which I had the pleasure of, of, you know, getting to know since our first uh, chat a few months ago. And, and it's, um, tell me a little bit about the blog. And I love how you, you take um, certain words in other words to really concentrate on what you're trying to do. So tell us a little bit about your blog. Yeah, so it's, um, it is called Glioblastology. So um, I was trying to come up with a witty name that would, you know, the ology is just a, a study, you know, I mean, it goes back to the, the Greek, or maybe it's Latin. I don't know. Somebody who went to law, <laughs> went to law school will have to correct me there. Um, oh, at any rate, funny. so yeah. So I mean, I was like, well, what you know, what's a what's a concentrated study of this experience that I'm going through? Um, and so when I started that, when I I launched that thing, you know, I had been kind of out of sight, out of mind for a while, uh, and I wanted to get back into social engagement with people. Um, you know, I had been in the hospital and then that inpatient acute rehab place and because I was still using a wheelchair for some time after uh, the inpatient rehab, I just wasn't getting out too much. And so it started as, you know, I'm going to sort of make contact with the world again. So I started blogging about, uh, you know, I, I had the first couple of early posts about here's what glioblastoma is from my perspective. And what I learned is that people were not so interested in that kind of technical writing, um, but they were more interested in hearing stories. So I think there was an early shift that was about, you know, here is the, the experience of someone. I was 34. I'm 36 now, but I was 34 when I was diagnosed. Um, our youngest was eight months old at the time. We had to sell our house and move in with my parents uh, because care is expensive. Um, so anyway, it was like, man, what, what does that look like? And I just wanted to share with the world. Um, and I think that's continued to, uh, you know, motivate uh, my writing all the time. So recent posts, I've talked some about social security disability um, to, to give kind of a, a policy angle to a little bit of my experiences. Um, but it's been a, a terrific way. Uh, I think that, you know, I heard uh, recently that uh, someone reached out to me and said their neuro-oncologist recommended my blog to them, which is incredible. I mean, that's humbling, uh, but also so rewarding. Uh, that my blog is having this reach where folks who are just starting out with a with a diagnosis that is scary and frightening can turn to my blog and hopefully, you know, have a little bit of uh, optimism as a result of what I'm sharing with the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I think, I think sometimes the biggest fear is the unknown. And I think that you're putting a light on, hey, this might not be what you might be going through, but it, it might be similar. Um, and this is my story. And, and I think you're right. I think the stories are, are how people relate to, to each other. You know, let me ask you this, uh, as someone who is living with a serious illness and has gone through everything that you've gone through, are there any tips for people like me who has someone they love or a friend that has been diagnosed with a serious illness 
tips on how we can be supportive? Because I know that in reality, when someone has this diagnosis, good friends tend to withdraw because they don't know what to say. And I was just wondering if you had any advice to us um, to to not withdraw, but lean into the discomfort of connecting with someone with a serious illness to to not look away. Um, do you have any tips for us? Yeah, that's such a good good and important question. Um, and and folks do uh, turn away. You know, I mean, I think that's a reality um, that sometimes we're not equipped for in the beginning of this is that you might lose a couple of friends. And uh, I think for the folks, the, the quote unquote patients, um, we need to try not to be bitter. We need to try to understand this is tough for all parties. Um, I think what, what friends and loved ones can do, um, you know, one is uh, to, to just act, um, you know, to, to not say the, the question of like, oh, what do you need? Um, well, <laughs> you know, if you have advanced cancer, there's a lot that we need. Uh, so that's a tough question. Um, but, you know, so here's, here's a great example. We, we have a, a friend who runs a lawn care business and who reached out to us and said, hey, why don't you let me take care of your lawn this season? Um, that's hugely helpful. Um, if, you know, if you are at the grocery store and you just text and you're like, hey, I'm at the grocery store right now. Let me pick you up a few things. Um, so that you're being proactive. Uh, and if you sort of offer, uh, that puts the, the, the patient or the person in fact, that, that puts us in a position to turn it down. Whereas if you say, what do you need? Then we've got to take the responsibility of sort of asking for it. So I think it's figuring out ways to make it as easy as possible to provide support. Um, so that's one, one, one suggestion. That's a great point. Good. Um, and I think the other thing is that um, it's, it's okay to talk about what's going on. Now, uh, you know, I, I've also, you know, I've met people that uh, have not wanted to learn all the details of their, their diagnosis, and that's okay. We need to respect the space and the privacy uh, that folks have. But I think for the most part, um, you know, we, we do need an outlet to express the way that we feel. And our friends and our loved ones the same thing that they also need an outlet to say, gosh, this is my best friend. Uh, he, we, we were just, you know, going out for beers a couple of weeks ago and now he's in a hospital room and just came out of brain surgery. I want to talk about that. And my friends want to talk about that. So don't shy away from those conversations. Um, it's, it's okay. We need to get it out. <laughs> and do you feel yeah. like, you know, as, as the more I talk about death, the more I feel like I'm really talking about living and life. But also it's sometimes one of the hardest things to do in life is to just show up and just be like, hey, I'm here. And and not really feel like you have to fill the air. Um, but also just be like, hey, I'm here and I'm gonna just kind of visit with you for a little bit. Um, and that's some I, I the older I get, the more I feel like showing up is really, really hard. Um, and uncomfortable, but it's the most important thing we can do for other human beings. Yeah, I, I completely agree and support that for sure. 
So look, how do people find you on social media and how do people uh, support what you do or how can we get involved with what you do or how can we support you and your family? Here I am asking, like putting, putting that back on you, but, but you know, I'm not at a grocery store down the street, but I, I want to follow you. I, I admire you. I admire your family and not just your immediate family, but your entire family rallying around um, you and supporting you. So how do people get involved with your social media and how do we uh, continue to support you, whether it's through social media or through just any, anything other than social media? Yeah, great. So, um, you know, I think a, a, a nice, uh, so, uh, so my, my blog, uh, glioblastology, um, you, you know, you can Google it or just glioblastology.com. That's where you'll find me and my writing. And there's, you know, I have my contact info there. So that would be a nice, a nice way to find me on the web. Um, my, my wife. Um, so that's, it's interesting. She blogs as well. And we, we don't coordinate our, our blog posts. Um, we just sort of both, both blog on the pace and on the topics that make sense. Um, but people that read both of the blogs have recognized that we really do offer that complimentary. If you're, if you're a caregiver or, or as we like to say, a care partner, um, I love and it. you want to have that perspective. My, my wife's blog is faith, hope, and wine.com, which is pretty good. I think your, your wife and I are going to get along really, really well. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Um, so those are both of our blogs. And then I, I am on Twitter all the time. So it's just at Adam Hayden. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Well, Adam, I just really appreciate your time and my thoughts are with you. Um, I'm, I want to be one of your biggest cheerleaders to get through this and, and, and see you thrive, uh, for a very, very long time. And I just, um, thank you for what work you're doing in the, in the midst of even going through this serious illness. And I think your voice is very powerful and I think your voice can change how we treat people with serious illness as well, as well as how people in the industry um, physicians and nurses treat people by just your story. So it's really important um, to get your story out there. And I really thank you. And, and I admire you. And you're probably one of the bravest people I've ever met and had the opportunity to talk to. So as well as your wife, um, we can't forget her because there's so many people around you supporting you. So thanks for, for sharing your story. Yeah, well, Kimberly, you, you speak about strength and, and bravery and courage and uh, you know, uh, folks like me would not have a voice uh, without folks like you helping to sort of uplift what we're doing. So your work uh, is is so vitally important uh, to sharing this message. So thank you for your courage and bravery to broadcast this. Yeah, well, maybe together we can change the world. So, you know, Adam, be well, my friend. And I hope when I'm through Indiana, um, I'll reach out and I would love to to meet you and have a glass of wine with your wife and and just uh, celebrate uh, one day at a time. Terrific. Wonderful. Plan on it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Adam. Okay, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.